Amen. Though the wrong seems off so strong. I remember exactly when that hymn was written, but I know it was a while ago. And yet those words are appropriate for our day and age today. And if you have come into church this morning, you come into this building and you feel like evil is winning, the wrong is so strong, and you're wondering, okay, God, if this is your world, if you are on the throne, when will you do something about it? Why aren't you doing something now? Why aren't you acting in the way that I think would be best? Whatever it is that you are going through this morning, whatever you've gone through this week, whatever trials, discouragements, despair, suffering that you've experienced, I believe that God's word will address it this morning. I believe God's word will speak to it this morning in powerful ways, maybe ways that we weren't expecting as we go through a section in Daniel 11 that is so deeply historical and quasi-academic. I think we'll be blown away by how God will open our eyes this morning to see his glory and his goodness in the midst of suffering. So I invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. For those of you who are visiting with us, we have been making our way through the book of Daniel. The first half of Daniel is all narrative. It's all those stories, Daniel 1 through 6, all of those stories that many of us are familiar with. Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, things like that. And then the back half of Daniel, which typically is less familiar to us, is all prophecy. It's all dealing with prophetic uh, visions that the Lord gave to Daniel and the description of what those visions mean. There are four of them specifically, and we have found our way in studying this uh, book verse by verse. We come to the very end, this last uh, prophecy, this last vision in Daniel chapter 11. Last week, we looked at the opening of this chapter, specifically verses 1 through 20, And as we did, we saw a historical account. Remember, this is future for Daniel. It's all about how Persia and then Greece and then all of those uh, people groups that are going to rise and fall, the Seleucids, uh, Antiochus, the Ptolemies, all those different people groups that we talked about last Lord's Day. That was an, uh, an account of a period that covered 530 BC to 175 BC from Cyrus to a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. So it's 355 years that's given to us in 19 verses. This morning, we're only going to cover verses 21 to 35, and it's 12 years, 12 years that will be covered, 175 BC to 163 BC in 15 verses. So last Lord's Day, 19 verses, 355 years worth of history. This Lord's Day, 15 verses, 12 years. So that tells us that God is purposely slowing down in looking at human history, in giving Daniel a prophecy of what's about to come. He's slowing down in this section because it's very, very important. A single reign of Antiochus gets essentially equal space with the 355 years that come before him. So my question is, why? Why does God do it this way? Why does Antiochus need so much space here? And I think that we'll see those reasons why as we go through the text. 
So Daniel chapter 11, we will begin reading in verse 21, all the way down to verse 35. And then we'll pray and ask God's blessing on our time. And then we'll dive into an absolutely amazing section of God's word. Daniel chapter 11, verse 21. And in his place, that's in Seleucid IV's place, he died. In his place, a despised person will stand to whom the splendor of the kingdom has not been given, but he's going to come in a time of ease and take hold of the kingdom by intrigue. But the overflowing might will be flooded away before him and broken, also the prince of the covenant. And after an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception. He will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of ease, he will enter the richest parts of the province and he will do what his fathers never did, nor his father's fathers. He will distribute plunder, spoil, and possessions among all of them. And he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. He will stir up his strength and heart against the king of the south with a great military force. So the king of the south will wage war with an extremely large and mighty military force for war, but he won't stand because schemes will be devised against him. Those who eat his choice food will break him. His military force will overflow, but many will fall down slain. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil and they will speak falsehood at the same table, but it won't succeed for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Then he will return to his land with great possessions, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant and he will take action and return to his own land. And at the appointed time, he will return and come into the south. But this time it will not happen the way it did before. Indeed, ships of Kittim will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return and become indignant at the holy covenant and he'll take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. Mighty fortresses from him will stand, profane the sanctuary fortress and abolish the regular sacrifice. They will set up the abomination of desolation and by smooth words, he will turn to godlessness, those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. And when they fall, they will be granted a little help and many will join with them in intrigue. And some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the time of the end. Because it is still to come at the appointed time. Father, we come again to the book of Daniel. We come again to inspired, inerrant, infallible scripture. These are God-breathed words. These are your words. And we ask that you would write their eternal truths upon our heart this morning in such a way where we walk out of this place affected. May we not remain unaffected. But as we saw last Lord's Day, we read through a section of scripture that's all history to us. It seems like a history lesson. It seems like something from a history textbook. And we ask the question, what is it that we are supposed to see from these verses? And so, Father, we come before you and we ask that same question. 
Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We want to see what you want us to see. We want to learn what you want us to learn. You slowed down in this vision of history for Daniel so that he would see something in these verses, so that your people would see something and would be changed. So do that work in us today. May we be responsive to your word. May we respond accordingly to your word. May may we, as we leave from this place, may we go with a renewed affection for Christ, with a renewed understanding of your sovereign control, with a love for you, a trust in you, and a desire to watch as you work in our suffering, as you work in our trials, as you work in our discouragements, as you work in our hurt and you work in our pain. Give us a a grand sense of who you are, that your holiness and glory would weigh heavy on this place this morning. And God, as we pray every Lord's Day, show us Christ. May we love him more because of our time together. We pray it in his name. Amen. What I want to do this morning is I want to go through these verses and try to give a, an understanding and explanation to them and then ask, so what? As we ask every Lord's Day, as we ask every time we read the scriptures, we are asking, what does the text say? What does the text mean by what it says? And then what does that meaning mean for us? That's what we're doing. What does it say? What does it mean by what it says? And what does that meaning mean for us? And so I want to do it in that order. I want to look at what the text says, which we read, and I want to give an understanding historically. We know all of these events, how they happen in history. We've actually looked at a lot of these events already when we studied Daniel chapter 8, because the little horn in Daniel chapter 8 is Antiochus Epiphany. So we already have a good introduction to him, and I don't want to repeat a lot of that this morning. Once we do that, we will then ask, so what? What does the text say? We've already read it. What does it mean by what it says? That's what we're going to do now. And then so what? What does that mean for our lives today? What does the text mean? Verse 21, we have this individual, this despised man in his place. That's Seleucid IV when Seleucid IV dies. Remember you had Antiochus's and Seleucid's up in the north. They're in Syria. You have Israel and then you have Egypt in the south. Those are the Ptolemies. And they're fighting together over each other. They're fighting over the land, they're fighting over power, and they're fighting literally over Israel, trying to take control of that land bridge in between those two people groups. So Seleucid up in the north in Syria, he dies. His son should have taken the throne. But you can see, verse 21, a despised person will stand to whom the splendor of the kingdom's not been given. He's not the one who deserves it, but he's going to come at a time of the ease and he's going to take hold of the kingdom. That's exactly what happened because Seleucid IV's son, who should have taken the throne when Seleucid IV died, his son was being held hostage in Rome by Rome. And so the kingdom was wide open for somebody to come in and take over. Interesting, there's a guy that uh, was probably the one who poisoned Seleucid IV and killed him in verse 20, not in battle, but uh, killed him by poison. That individual was the tax collector that Seleucid IV had told to go get all the taxes uh, from the people. That guy began to reign for a couple months, and then Antiochus came in and said, are you sure you want to reign, or do you want me to do this job? And kind of held a sword to his throat, and the guy said, you know what, you can take it. It's a good job, you take it, I'm, I'm backing out. That individual, this despised person in verse 21, is Antiochus the fourth, or we know him as Antiochus Epiphanes. He's the little horn in Daniel 8. 
He was born in modern-day Iran in 215 B.C., died in 164 B.C. His sister was Cleopatra II. He's the eighth king of the Seleucid dynasty in the north. He became king in 175 B.C., very passionate about the Greek culture, worshipped Greek gods. He thought he was the physical manifestation of Zeus. That's why he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. The word Epiphanes means God manifested in human form. I am God in human form. That's what he thought about himself. The Jews had a, a play on words to that. Instead of calling him Antiochus Epiphanes, they called him Antiochus Epimenes because the word Epimenes means a crazy madman. And the Greeks actually joined in as well and thought this guy was insane. He's a despised person. One commentator said he is a slick and godless piece of scum. And we see that even in verse 21. He takes over the power. He just kind of slinks in to take over the throne. Comes in a time of ease. He takes hold of the kingdom by intrigue. My Bible says intrigue. The word literally means smooth or slippery. It's a, some of your Bibles might say flattery. It's smooth talk. It's slippery speech. He's a perfect politician. A very interesting implication right off the bat. Beware of flattery. Beware of using slippery speech. It will get Antiochus far, but only so far. He's actually going to die. It's going to cost him because of it. And ultimately, you might be able to get far in life by flattering others, slippery speech with others. You will never get far with God. On judgment day, your flattery of God will not get you far. So Antiochus is a despicable, despised individual. And as we're going to see, Lord willing, uh, next Lord's Day, Antiochus is a, a, a prototype for who the Antichrist is going to be. In fact, the abomination desolation that we read in this section is what Jesus says, that's a type of what's going to happen in the future that we just read in Mark chapter 13. So if you want to know what Antichrist is going to look like, study Antiochus, because Antiochus is an Antichrist type. So he comes to power, verse 22, the overflowing might, that's of Ptolemy VI down in the south. He's going to say, hey, you don't deserve the throne up there in the north. I'm going to try and come in and destroy you. But it's going to be flooded away before him. And broken, the word broken is a specific word, not killed, not destroyed, not uh, the, the dynasty down in the south, the Ptolemies, and specifically Ptolemy VI, isn't going to be killed in battle. But he's going to be taken hostage. He's going to be taken captive. He's taken captive by Antiochus Epiphanes. And he takes him back up into Syria, up into the north. He's the prince of the covenant. The prince of the covenant, in verse 23, we're going to see this alliance that was made. Ptolemy VI had made a peace treaty with the north to try and ask for help in gaining ground back in Egypt against Ptolemy VIII, who had taken over and was backed by the Romans. And Antiochus is fine to agree with that. Maybe I can become friends with the South. We can fight against Rome. And then I can fight against the South and I can win the whole world. Verse 23, he makes this alliance, but then he practiced deception. He goes to gain power with a small force of people. In times of ease, he's going to enter the richest parts of the province. He's going to go into the richest parts to get money and gain power. And he does so for a short time. And we see this actually happen. This occurred. And we have it in some history textbooks. We have, uh, we discussed this with Daniel chapter 8, the apocryphal books, uh, apocrypha. You guys actually know the Greek, the opposite Greek word of apocryphon is apocalypse. Apocalypse is to unveil, to uncover, to reveal. Uh, revelation, apocalypse. Apocryphon is to, conf to conceal, to, to keep hidden. 
So the apocryphal books, they were written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. They were all written in Greek, not in Hebrew. When Jerome was translating the Latin Vulgate, which is Hebrew Old Testament put into Greek New Testament, Hebrew Old Testament and Greek New Testament put into Latin in the 300s AD, he didn't know what to do with these books because they're Old Testament time period, but they're written in Greek. What do we do with these books? So he translated them, but he put them into a set of their own, 14 total books, not Old Testament, not New Testament, apocryphal books that happen historically in the intertestamental period, but they're not scripture. They're not divinely inspired by God. They're not inerrant. They just give us historical perspective. And the reason why I say that is because the verse uh, in verse 24, the verse detailing what Antiochus is is going to do of distributing plunder, possessions, devising schemes, stealing money. All of that's described in a book called 1 Maccabees in chapter 1, verse 21, which is an apocryphal book. Again, this is not scripture, but it's historic. It's a historical book. It helps give an understanding of what was going on. 1 Maccabees chapter 1, verse 21 says, he arrogantly, this is Antiochus, arrogantly entered the sanctuary, took the golden altar, the lampstand for the light, all of its utensils, took the table for the bread of the presence, the cups for drinking offer, drink offerings, the bowls, the golden censers, the curtain, the crown, the gold decorations on the front of the temple, stripped it all off, took the silver, took the gold, took the costly vessels, took the hidden treasures, uh, took them all, and then went into his own land. He shed much blood and spoke with great arrogance. That's exactly what's happening in verse 24. But it's only for a time. You can see at the end of verse 24, it's only for a time. One commentator says, regardless of his wealth and power, his military prowess and cunning, Antiochus would never exceed the limits allotted to him by the Lord of history. So it's only for a time. Verse 25 gives us an understanding of Antiochus saying, okay, I'm going to fight against Ptolemy, against the South. This is uh, uh, going back to that first initial fight where he's going to go to the South and fight. Antiochus is launching a military conquest to bring the South into his possession. Verse 26 says that Ptolemy's advisors are going to tell him to fight back, to not surrender, to fight back and to overtake Antiochus, which is a bad idea. That's why it says those who are eating his choice food with him will break him. Those who are eating with Ptolemy will tell him really bad advice and they're going to get him uh, in a lot of trouble. Ultimately, when he is taken captive that we already saw back in the earlier section, when he is taken captive, he and Antiochus will start working on this treaty to figure out how can we form an alliance to fight against our enemies. That's why verse 27 says, both kings, their hearts are intent on evil, will speak falsehood at the same table. They're hanging out together after they've warred against each other. And Antiochus is clearly one. He brings Ptolemy to his table. They start talking, they start scheming together, but he's gonna break that treaty. They make plans to regain Egypt from the newest Ptolemy, Ptolemy the eighth. While Ptolemy VI is in captivity in the north. Verse 28, Antiochus is going to return to his land with great possessions, a lot of plunder. His heart will be set against the Holy Covenant, against God's people, and he'll take action and then return to his own land. He wants to take over the whole world, and he wants to do that by cunning, by slippery speech. But ultimately, verse 29, at the appointed time, He's going to finally be fed up with Egypt and he's going to go into the South and he's going to say, I want to destroy all of you and take this over. Forget the peace treaty. Forget trying to make an alliance. I'm done with this. I just want to take over. So he goes in verse 29 to the South. Again, that's Egypt. That's the Ptolemies, the Ptolemy dynasty. But this time it won't happen the way it did before. 
Something's going to be different. And what's going to be different is said in verse 30. Indeed, the ships from Kittim will come out against them. Kittim is another word for Cyprus. So this is Rome. Rome is going to send ships over to Egypt and stop them. And we talked about this in Daniel chapter 8. He shows up in Egypt. He brings all of his military might. And he says, I'm going to conquer Egypt. And Rome says, hey, we're behind Egypt. And so if you fight against Egypt, you're fighting against Rome. And we don't recommend doing that because then we'll send all of our troops against you and destroy you. And Antiochus says, okay. I hear you. Let me think about it. Let me think about whether I'm going to go through the, with the plan and take over Egypt or if I'm going to back off. Let me, give me some time to think. And this is that story where the, uh, the general that's in charge, a guy by the name, a Roman general by the name of Lanus, he says, okay, I'll give you as, as much time as you need. And he draws a circle around Antiochus in the sand and says, take as much time as you need. But when you step out of that circle, you have to have a decision made. So don't move until you decide. And Antiochus is incredibly angry. He gets the the picture and he goes, okay, fine. I'm not going to attack Egypt. You win Rome. You take your people. You control your people here in Egypt. I'm out. And he leaves. But he leaves so angry. What's the natural response of a prideful person being utterly humiliated? That's what we get here. Self-protection, anger, rage, taking out your aggression on somebody else. And remember, he lives up in Syria. He's gone all the way down to Egypt to fight. And he was just told, you can't fight against Egypt. Rome says, this is our land. These are our people. Don't do this. Don't fight against them. So in going back home, he has to pass through Israel. And when he passes through Israel, this is when he brings the worst persecution against the Jews up until that point. First Maccabees speaks about this. Chapter one, verse 29, the king said, to the cities of Judah, a chief uh, tax collector. He came to Jerusalem with a large force. It was more than 20,000 soldiers. Deceitfully, he spoke peace to them and they believed him. But then suddenly he fell upon the city, dealt a severe blow, destroyed many people of Israel, plundered the city, burned it with fire, tore down its houses and its surrounding walls, took captive the women, the children, seized the livestock. And then what he's going to do as he's killing people, this is when he commits the abomination of desolation. You can see it. In verse 30, at the end, he's going to come back through the land, show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. So he's speaking out against those who keep the covenant. And verse 31, mighty forces from him will stand. They will profane the sanctuary fortress, abolish the regular sacrifice, and set up the abomination of desolation. This was done on the 15th day of Kislev in the 145th year of the Seleucid dynasty. He sacrificed a pig. He took over the temple in Jerusalem, sacrificed a pig on the altar, uh, erected a statue to Zeus and said, you need to worship Zeus. Again, the book of Maccabees go into detail on this. He put an end to daily sacrifices in the temple, forbade uh, circumcision of Jewish infants, made it a crime to possess a copy of the Jewish scriptures, made it illegal to be a Jew in Jerusalem, set up idols in the temple, murdered and sacrificed Jews to his God in the temple, stopped the sacrificial system that the Jews had established, uh, established a brand new calendar to erase Yahweh, set up altars in every Jewish village that would demand a pig be sacrificed on that altar to a statue of Zeus. He's just going after everybody. Massive persecution. Verse 32. By smooth words, he will turn God to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. So he's either going to kill you if you stand opposed to him, or he's going to try to assimilate you into his regime through smooth words, through that flattery, through that cunning, through that uh, crafty speech. 
And that's why it says in verse 32, the people who know their God will display strength and take action. They can hear and with discernment assess what you're saying is not true. Even the slippery words, even the smooth words, it's not true. And how do they know? They know because they know God. They don't know because they're smart. They don't know because they're wise. They know because they know God. If you know God, you're able to know error. You take action when you know God. And if you're not taking action, there's a question, do you know God? This is what 1 John is all about as we've been studying it, right? If you know God, it's going to lead you to action. And so these individuals were led to action. And speaking of those who know their God, this is probably speaking of the Maccabees, those who would take action against Antiochus. Very interesting story, the Maccabees. We talked about it again from Daniel chapter 8. Just a reminder, the Maccabees, that word comes from Judas Maccabeus. Maccabees just is a word that um, is a, from a Hebrew word for hammer. He's Judas the hammer. He's the one who went after Antiochus and destroyed what Antiochus was st- setting up. Amazing story. His dad, Matthias, was uh, the high priest in a city. Uh, and he was the, the main, the elder priest in the city up in the north, close to Tel Aviv. And as they were setting up all these different altars in the cities and sacrificing pigs on it and worshiping Zeus, they said, you need to do this, Matthias. And Matthias said, I will never do that. And then this other younger priest in training says, fine, I'll do it. I'll I'll tow the party line of what Antiochus is trying to do. And so he went to sacrifice the pig. And if you remember the story, Matthias pulled out a sword, killed that priest, and then killed all of the uh, soldiers from Antiochus and said, that's it, we started a war. And so they start this guerrilla warfare. They start fighting. About a year later, Matthias dies, and Judas, his son, takes over. Judas Maccabeus, uh, the hammer. Judas the hammer takes over and fights, fights against Antiochus, and gets all the way to the very end of this battle, goes all the way down to Jerusalem, takes over the temple, rededicates the temple on the 25th of Kislev, which is December 14th in the year 164 B.C., And they rededicate the temple to the Lord. And the word for rededication in Hebrew is Hanukkah. And that's the celebration of Hanukkah that we talked about as we studied Daniel 8. So they are the ones, the people who know their God, will display strength and take action. Verse 33, those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many. If you know how to follow the Lord, why to follow the Lord, you're going to teach others and give them insight. And yet many will fall by the sword by captivity and by plunder for many days. That's exactly what happened. It seemed like the only choice in Antiochus's reign was to be a living pagan or a dead Israelite. Many in Israel caved to his demands, but because of this prophecy, because of this forewarning, and because of the teaching of this prophecy, many didn't cave. Many didn't cave. In fact, if you want to read an interesting story, read 2 Maccabees chapter 7, which tells of a of a mother who had seven sons, who on a single day, the mom watched as the seven sons were tortured before her and killed. They started by pulling their scalps from their heads. They cut off their extremities. They prepared a large cauldron and literally fried them to death before their mom, one at a time, each time saying, you can stop this mom if you will simply acknowledge that Zeus is God and Yahweh isn't. She never succumbed to that, and she was killed as well. And many believe, by the way, that Hebrews 11, verse 35 is talking about her. Hebrews 11, 35 says, women receive back their dead by resurrection, but others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better 
resurrection. Verse 34, as this persecution is happening, when they fall, they will be granted a little help. Many will join with them in intrigue in that flattery of speech. There's going to be hypocritical people that are jumping in saying, okay, I'll join with the Maccabees so that I don't die in this crazy takeover. Don't kill me. I I joined with Antiochus first because I didn't want to die. I'm joining with the Maccabean revolt because I don't want to die. And then verse 35, some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the time of the end. So these hypocrites that are coming in, God says, no, the persecution is going to weed you out, ultimately. As a result of Antiochus' persecution, many will fall away, which is true of the end times as well. When the tribulation happens, many will say, there's a great apostasy that the Bible talks about with a falling away. Why? Because of persecution. Because people say, I I didn't sign up for this. I signed up to follow Jesus who has a wonderful plan for my life. This isn't a fun plan. I don't want this plan. This is what Mark 4 says with the parable of the sower and the soils. Those four soils, one of them, that rocky soil, that bedrock soil. When the seed goes into the ground and it starts to grow, it hits the bedrock soil and it springs up. And the disciples ask Jesus, what does that mean? And Jesus says, it's those who receive the gospel with joy. They start to grow. But then because of persecution arising from the word, they fall away. It's a great question to us. Why did you follow Jesus? Did you follow Jesus to have a happy, easy, carefree life? Or did you follow Jesus because you knew that he and he alone could forgive you of your sins. He and he alone is your master and your Lord. He is king and he is the ultimate satisfaction, not the kind of happiness that people seek in the American dream, but the kind of happiness that goes deep to the soul where you can have joy even in the midst of sorrow and pain. God uses the suffering and persecution of his people to accomplish his good purposes, to refine, purify, strengthen the faith of all of these individuals, to cleanse the church of its sinful practices, and to distinguish between true believers and those who are just faking it, just like we see in 1 John. So we ask, what does the text say, which we read? What does it mean by what it says? It's just describing a historical account that actually happened from Antiochus and his reign of terror and persecution and suffering. So now the question is, so what? Why is this here? The the point of these verses very clearly in its immediate context is to prepare God's people for suffering, namely to prepare Israel for the rule of Antiochus. Interestingly, God has done the exact same thing for you and for me, for his bride in the New Testament. Almost every book in the New Testament speaks of suffering and how we will face it. And then specifically, the book of Revelation speaks of how the ultimate Antiochus, the Antichrist, will bring about the worst persecution in the history of the world and how believers in that time period need to be prepared to handle that so that they do so with discernment and don't fall away. But inside of that reality, inside of that preparation for suffering, God gives us in this text three very specific truths about suffering that will enable us to view it rightly and prepare accordingly. So when we talk about so what, here's what I believe these verses teach us today in the exact same way that they would have taught the people of God in Daniel's day. Number one, three truths about suffering. Number one, our suffering is never outside of God's control. Our suffering is never outside of God's control. How many times do we read in this text, appointed time, until the time, the appointed time, verse 24, verse 27, verse 29, verse 35, 
Dale Ralph Davis says, these little notes, this repeated refrain of the appointed time should prove heartening to suffering people who will weather years under a loose cannon like Antiochus, who afflicts madness and murder seemingly at will. He says this, just like Psalm 23, the way of the valley of the shadow of death is yet one of the paths of righteousness. So here, mysteriously, even chaotic times are appointed by God. Antiochus will not be footloose and fancy free as he may seem because God determines even the terms of tyrannies and they are tethered to the dates on God's calendar. And Antiochus can only operate within those appointed times. It's just as true as it is today as it was back then. One of the great purposes of prophecy is to remind us that God is in control. Our suffering is never outside of his control. He is the king over all of human history. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5, Jesus is the ruler of all the kings of all of the earth. Revelation chapter 17 verse 14, people will try to wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. I absolutely understand being concerned. As we look around the world today and we see evil reigning, we see evil ruling, I absolutely understand being concerned. And we should pray and it should lead us to evangelism and discipleship. It should lead us to action. But what it should never lead us to is worry, anxiety, or fear. I I love the way one pastor said in, in speaking of this text, he said, one of the applications of this text is to let the word relax land on us. Just relax. Don't be afraid, don't be scared, don't be nervous, don't be anxious. Even when evil seems to be winning, God's in authority over it. John Piper says it this way, the biblical categories of God's sovereignty over all things lie like landmines in the passages of the Bible. Just waiting for someone to seriously open this book. They don't kill, but they do explode trivial notions of the almighty God. And then he says this, this is so important. Wimpy worldviews make wimpy Christians and wimpy Christians will never survive the days ahead. So brothers and sisters, we're reminded in this text, as God is saying, there's going to be massive persecution that's going to happen. He says, but only in the appointed time. I'm in control over it. I am allowing it. I am ordaining it. I am overseeing it. And nothing happens outside of his control. This is what the Bible says. Psalm 42, uh, the psalmist says, your waves and your breakers are crashing over me. You're the one who's in control of this trial. Job 13, verse 15, though you slay me, yet I will trust you. Now that might lead some of you this morning to say, wait, time out. How is that comforting? How is it comforting if I know that God's in control of my suffering and I know that he is all powerful and all loving and all knowing, then why doesn't he stop it? Why is it a comforting thing to know he's allowing this, he's ordaining this, he could stop this and prevent this, but he's not? Maybe you see your sufferings in your trial and you think, okay, if God truly cared about me, he would stop this. Or you look back in your life and you go, if God really cared about me, he would have stopped it back then. By the way, If you feel that, join the club. Mark chapter four, remember the disciples in the boat as the waves are crashing over and the boat's sinking and Jesus is asleep. They say to him, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? 
Because surely if you cared, you would have already been up right now and saving us. But you're allowing us to go through this mess, through this suffering. You're allowing us to die. You don't care. You don't care. This is exactly what we all do. In our human fleshly understanding, we all do this. We all draw a line from our circumstances and take it back to the character of God and say, my circumstances stink and they're painful and they're awful and God's not doing anything about it. And therefore, God, you're awful too. We should do the exact opposite. We should draw a line from God's character, which is so clear in the Bible, and see our suffering in light of that. God's in control and we can draw a line from his character down to our sufferings and now ask, okay, God, what is your character? Therefore, what are you accomplishing in these trials? What is God's character? I see a God in scripture who in Exodus 3, 7 says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I'm concerned about their suffering. So often when we talk about the sovereignty of God, we think that God's in control in an unfeeling way. The Bible would say otherwise. The Bible says, even the suffering that I'm allowing you to go through, I'm concerned when I see you in pain. Or Lamentations chapter three, he doesn't afflict willingly, literally in the Hebrew, from his heart. If there was another way to do this, he would do this. But this is the best way. God's allowing you to go through suffering because it's the best way to accomplish his best purposes in your life. I see a God in scripture who speaks of a time when he could bear his people's misery no more. Judges chapter 10, verse 16. I see a God who will wipe away every tear from our eye. Revelation 21, 4. I see a God who collects every tear that we cry in a bottle. Psalm 56, verse 8. Johnny Erickson Tata says, God, like a father, doesn't just give us advice he gives us himself. He becomes the husband of the grieving widow. He becomes the comforter to the barren woman. He becomes the father to the orphan. He becomes the bridegroom to the single person. He is the healer to the sick. He is the wonderful counselor to the confused and depressed. We have to go back to God's character and God's character is clear in the Bible. Psalm 119 verse 68, you are good and you do good. We read it even this morning in our prayer time in Psalm 92. You are a rock and you can do no unrighteous thing. So truth number one from these verses is that God's in control over all of our suffering. Our suffering is never outside of his plan. It's never outside of his sovereign control. It's never outside of his sight. It's never outside of his heart for you and for me. Which leads us to point number two. Our suffering is always purposeful. It's never outside of his control and it's always purposeful. Our suffering is always purposeful. We see one purpose in this text. If you go back into verse 35, some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine and to purge and to make them pure. But we, we're given one explicit statement. God is doing, he's allowing the persecution of Antiochus Epiphanes for the purpose of cleansing and purging his people. But we know biblically there are so many other answers for why God allows the, thing he, the things that he allows. We see here in this text, God is allowing to purify and to refine, which reminds us God is always doing something good in the midst of your suffering. No pain, as we sing very often at this church, no pain of ours is ever wasted. But let's be clear, there's a caveat to that statement. 
That statement comes from Romans 8, 28. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Sometimes when I'm sharing the gospel with people and they say, why should I believe in Jesus? And I'm sharing about eternity. I'm sharing about sins being forgiven. I'm sharing about all those things. And they ask, yeah, but why would a loving God allow me to go through the pain that I went through? One of the things that I say in that moment is, you know what? That pain will not be wasted. There's a purpose there. If you come to Jesus and you love him, we're told this promise, that pain is not wasted. It's working together for your good and for his glory. But if you reject Jesus, you don't have that promise. Do you hear how staggering that reality is? If you don't love Christ, the Bible would say that your pain is purposeless. It's absolutely pointless apart from Christ. Sometimes we ask that question of ourselves, God, what are you up to? I'd really like to know what you're doing. What's the purpose in all of this? Rest assured, brothers and sisters, if you love Jesus and you're called according to his purpose, rest assured, no pain of yours is ever wasted. God has a purpose in every suffering, in every trial. Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon. He says, quote, everything that happens to you is for your own good. If the waves roll against you, it only speeds your ship toward the port. If lightning and thunder comes, it clears the atmosphere and promotes your soul's health. You gain by loss. You grow healthy in sickness. You live by dying. You're made rich in losses. Could you ask for a better promise than this? It's better that all things, listen to what he says. This is such a good statement. It's better that all things should work for my good than that all things should be as I wish them to have been. Because all things might work for my pleasure and yet ultimately for my ruin. But if all things do not always please me, I know that they will always benefit me says, this is the best promise in this life. We naturally want to say, okay, God, then what are your purposes? What are, what are you doing? And I don't want this to be theoretical. Brothers and sisters, I want you to think right now, what are you going through? What trial? I mean, probably you're already thinking through the suffering you're going through as we're talking about this, but what trial, what despair, what discouragement, what discomfort, what trial are you experiencing? What suffering are you going through? Maybe it is persecution, maybe it's not. What are you experiencing right now that you would ask, okay, God, what is your purpose? And like I said, we know some purposes in the scriptures, but do you remember when Job asked God that question? Okay, God, what are you doing? My three friends, they don't know. Can you please tell me, what are, what are you up to, God? What are you doing? You remember God's response? Let's go look at giraffes. Let's go hang out with the zebras. Look at the stars. Look at the sand. Job, do you know how all of these things work? Job says, no. And God says, then you, you wouldn't be able to understand all of my purposes in what I'm allowing you to do and go through. God didn't give him a reason at all. And honestly, when we ask God, please just tell me what you're up to in my suffering. What are you doing? Let's be honest. If God said, here are all the things that I'm doing, and if we could comprehend all those things, we'd go, okay, but it still hurts. I still don't like this. Is there another way? Let's be honest that the purposes probably wouldn't help in that moment. 
The ultimate comfort in our suffering doesn't come from an explanation of the causes or even the purposes, but in a revelation of God himself. What are you suffering through right now? What are you going through? Do you see it as a gift from God? Do you see it as purposeful or purposeless? Do you feel that God is at work? God is good. And he has promised that he's doing something. Just like he said he was going to do with his people through the severe persecution of Antiochus, God is doing something. And my, my response to that, and I believe it's the question we have to ask ourselves is, Patrick, do you trust him? Do you, does CBC trust him? As we go through suffering individually and corporately, do we trust him? Not do we know the purposes, but do we trust that he has those purposes? And will we follow and obey? If I tell my son to do something, if I tell Tyler, he's six years old, if I say, hey, could you do this for me? And he says, uh, sure, but I'll only obey you if you explain to me why I have to do it. If Tyler will only obey me because it makes sense to him, if he'll only do what I'm asking him to do because it makes sense to him, then really it's not obedience, it's just agreement. Oh yes, that's what you're up to and that's the whole point of that and that's the whole purpose. I agree with that and I'll do that because I agree with it. It's just agreement, it's not obedience. It's not faith, it's not trusting. The problem in trying to communicate that to my son sometimes is He's six and I'm 37. He's my son and I'm his dad. That's a, there's a big gap between his understanding and my understanding of what's going on. So there are times where you want to say, you should do it because I'm your dad. You should do it because you're the child and I'm not. I'm the adult. We can easily feel that sense that a child should trust their parent. How much more so should we as creatures before our creator, trust our heavenly father. When he says, go through suffering, when he ordains it and allows it, instead of saying, wait, 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 I'm not doing this unless you tell me why. We need to be able to say, it's not about agreement here. It's about, I know my dad. I know my heavenly father. I know he loves me. I know he cares about me. He's not going to give me a rock when I ask for a piece of bread, Matthew 7. He's not going to give me a snake when I ask for uh, something to eat or some nice present. He's going to give me good gifts. He's going to give me good gifts. So really, the, the question at the bottom of all of our questions, of all of our, what are you do, up to, God? What's the purpose in this? The question at the bottom is, God, are you for me or against me? That's really the question. Are you for me or against me? Are you working for my good or are you against me? And that's what this text in one very small verse is reminding us. Oh, he has a purpose. And it's for your greatest good. It's for your greatest good. So number one, our suffering is never outside of God's control. Number two, our suffering always has a purpose. And number three, the final reality from these verses that I believe God would want us to take away from this. Number three, our suffering has an end date. Our suffering has an end date. I love the way one commentator says it, quote, in spite of all of the plans made by human leaders, including Antiochus Epiphanes, God is sovereign and the end of this evil king and his enterprises will come at the appointed time. 
there's an end and God declares it in this passage. He says, Israel, you're going to have a king who's going to reign over you, persecute you. It's going to be awful, but there's going to be an end. He says the same thing about the Antichrist as well. It's going to be awful. It's going to be terrible, but there's going to be an end. We read it today in Mark chapter 13, specifically about the tribulation. He cuts it off so that there is an end and so that his elect would follow him and would be spared. Our suffering has an end date. It seems like Antiochus is going to rule forever. Twelve short years later, he's dead. He's gone. And the same thing is true for our suffering. It does not seem light and momentary, like 2 Corinthians talks about, but that is exactly what suffering is. There's an end to it that will produce for us and in us an eternal weight of glory. It's a staggering reality to know that the suffering we go through in this life is making us hope for and long for the life yet to come. I love the way Ed Welch says it, quote, on this side of the cross, misery persists, but the scales are tipped in the favor of joy. I don't know what misery you're going through, but your scales, the scales of the misery that we're going through are tipped in the favor of joy. And just give it time. Just give it time. Samuel Rutherford, old Puritan pastor, says, our, t- our little time of suffering is not worthy of our first night's welcome home in heaven. So, this passage speaks of the suffering of God's people, prepares them for it. But in the midst of that preparation, it speaks very clearly to the reality of what suffering is. Suffering is never outside of God's control. Suffering is always purposeful. And suffering ultimately has an end date. By the way, those three realities are what our Savior was clinging to on this earth as he went through his suffering. Remember, he said, this is the hour. This is the hour that I've come. I'm not going to run away from the cross because this is the appointed hour for my suffering. This is not outside of God's hands. The cross and the slaughter of the Son of God is not outside of God's hands. No, this is the reason why I came. This is God's purpose. This is God's ordained sovereign plan. And he knew it had a purpose. Suffering always does. And the Savior knew, I'm going to win to myself, for myself, many sons and daughters to glory. And he knew the suffering would end. It ended He cries out, it is finished. And then the father declares over him at that empty tomb, it is finished. Sin has been paid for. Your suffering is over and you have won, conquered, victorious. So I just want to ask you this morning, and I want to to ask you to do something. I'm going to pray as we end our time this morning. We're not going to sing because we don't have enough time, but I want to do this. As I pray, I want you to be asking This question, God, what is it that you want me to do with this? How do you want me to respond? What is the response I should have? Because this isn't theoretical or hypothetical. We are all going through trials. We're all going through despair. And so I want you to see those three realities. Suffering is never outside of God's control. Suffering always has a purpose and suffering will have an end date. I want you to take those three and lay them before the Lord and say, God, where do I need to grow in this? And then what I want you to do after I'm done praying, before we jump right into teardown, and I really appreciate our church family, how we just all pitch in to help. Thank you so much for doing that. 
But before we do that, don't let this moment go where God is asking us to respond. I want you to turn to somebody next to you and say, what, what's your one takeaway? What's your one takeaway? What's the one thing that, that you feel that here from these verses and from this sermon, I need to do, I need to think differently, I need to change. What's your one takeaway? And then pray with each other. Pray with each other and take one another, your burdens and your souls before the throne together and say, God, help us to trust you in these things. But don't let this moment go without taking this to the Lord and saying, God, you're asking me to respond and I want to do that. Father, we thank you that you are in control. And I know that we have hurting people. I know that we have trial. We're all human. The Bible is abundantly clear that we're all going, going to go through suffering and persecution. We know that. And it's so easy to feel like we're walking in that suffering alone. So easy to feel like we are experiencing some pain that's worse than what other people might even comprehend. And so we don't share. And we are then literally walking alone by ourselves without the help of our church family. And God, I just pray that you, in your graciousness, would work in our hearts, even now, to help us to know, okay, so what? How do we respond to this? To not just walk out of here saying, okay, I know those realities about God, but what am I going to do in light of those realities? I need to live differently in light of that. And what can I do today? What can I do in this moment? How can I pray for somebody else? God, I pray that we would do that with one another, that we would bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And I pray that as we do that, you would be pleased to see your people genuinely care about one another. So Father, be our guide, be our help. As we go from here, may we go with a deeper affection for you, a trust in you, a hope in you. And follow your lead, follow your example as you, our Savior, lived these three realities out as you went to the cross. We love you. We pray all of this in the precious, holy, and matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.